If you're arriving here before listening to the previous episode titled The Trajectory of Knowledge, back up and check that out first. If you listen to that episode, you heard me promise to dig a little deeper into the topic of science communication, which seems from our first conversation on broadening participation to have a lot to do with the topic. As promised, the following is my conversation with my favorite expert on the topic. Truth be told, I only know one. But if you only know one expert on a topic, you're pretty lucky to stumble on one that's such a huge delight to chat with. Dr. Sunshine Menezes has served as executive director of the Metcalf Institute at the University of Rhode Island since 2006. She became a clinical associate professor of environmental communication in URI's Department of Natural Resources Science in 2017. She'd spent more than a decade before that as a specialist in science communication and science policy. Menezes received a BS in zoology from the Michigan State University, a PhD in biological oceanography from URI's Graduate School of Oceanography, and was a Rhode Island Foundation Fellow from 2013 to 2014. Before we get started, I have some pretty great episodes over the next few weeks that are coming your way, but I'm always planning new ways to mix up and enliven the format. I hope you'll connect on Twitter at M.A. Lesser and let me know if you have ideas for topics, guests, or feedback on things you want to hear more of. If you have none of those things and want to just send a Twitter high five, that's okay too. If you believe in the show and want to help me reach more people, head back to wherever you downloaded the episode, like and subscribe, and consider offering a review. Thanks. Enjoy this chat on science communication with Sunshine Menezes. This is No Such Thing, a podcast about the promise and reality of learning with technology. I'm Mark Lesser. Name right when I say Menezes. You're, yes, Menezes. Menezes. So think of it kind of as two Z's. Menezes. Like fezes. Oh. Okay. Does that work for you? It doesn't Pe- work for pezzes. some people. Or pezes. Yeah. Menezes like pezes. Multiple pezes. Yes, multiple. That's, nice. That's good. I've never used pez before. That is nice. So, Sunshine, thank you for joining. We had an awesome... Uh, I've, I've had several conversations during the course of the task force meeting um, we are here in uh, what is one of the sunshiny uh, per- perimeter rooms of this uh, hotel that we've been locked down in for mm-hmm. two days. Um, and I'm excited to talk to you because I have some unanswered questions around um, science communication. Um, would you believe that when we first met, a year ago when this task force started and science communication was brought up, it was like a vague idea of what that was in my mind. But, but I didn't know, I, you know, I feel like one of the things that's come out of this year um, for me is a much clearer understanding of what science communication is about. Um, you are the executive director of the Metcalf Institute at University of Rhode Island. Uh, you do this Maybe in your sleep, even uh, at this point. <laughs> yep. Um, can can we start with a little like a little vocab lesson on what is science communication? Because I can't be the only one who's like, oh, this is a field. That is a great question. So thank you for having me. Yes. Um, science communication is a lot of things. Um, you know, in the broadest possible terms, this is simply people 
communicating about science topics. So that can happen in, you know, one-on-one, you and me talking about science. This can be, um, you know, scientists trying to share their research findings with with other scientists or with people outside of their fields. It could be, um, uh, you know, Bill Nye the Science Guy um, doing all the things he does. It could be a film about science. Mm-hmm. Um, it could be a film that's not quote unquote about science, but that includes scientific topics. Mm. So you could argue that if you wanted, we could have this conversation. Let's do it. Let's have an argument. You know, that um, like the, the, the Marvel comics films are in some strange way, science communication, because they have, and I'm borrowing this line of reasoning from a colleague of ours, Rachel Burks, mm-hmm. um, because they have created these, you know, the authors of these comics created these worlds that have their own physical constructs and limitations in terms mm. of like how those superheroes function, you know? So there's science mm. behind all of that. Uh, interesting. So, so, um, so like Iron Man is an engineer and there's all kinds of sort of, um, uh, baggage there, like narrative baggage right. around how science is communicated in that context. Right. But then you, then, so that's a really interesting one. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd love to have that be on that panel. <laughs> you uh, need to talk to Rachel about that one because yeah. she could talk to you. So all Rachel, day long. Rachel Burks, who has been on the show, okay. um, and is fantastic. Um, coming back to this. So, so uh, uh, then there are, um, the more typical examples. So like sure. you're, you do, um, describe the fellowship that you run in sure. the fall. Cause that's a really great example. So we, so we actually at Metcalf Institute, we do a number of different training programs and we really have two target audiences. We do science training for professional journalists. And in fact, we have our, um, our oldest week long science immersion workshop for journalists coming up in June. And we also do communication training for scientists. So it's kind of like these two sides of this particular coin. There, I should say there are many, many more sides to this. But we're looking at a coin that has these two sides, mm-hmm. how journalists talk about science and um, how scientists talk about scientists. Yeah. Um, or And not just talk. You know, I'm hesitant to use that word because it's conveying mm-hmm. science in a lot of different ways. It could be visual. It could be, um, you know, sound. It could be all these different things. But for simplicity's sake, talk. So we want to help journalists um, better understand the scientific process. You know, how do scientists actually, what do they do every day? How do they formulate the questions that they want to research? How do they get the money to do this research? How do they um, um, write and publish their papers? You know, there's all that kind of nitty gritty stuff. And there's also um, then like the actual content. So we at Metcalf Institute focus on environmental science specifically. Mm. So we want the environmental stories that journalists are writing to not only be scientifically accurate, but have kind of broader contexts that relate to natural science and social science and engineering and people, Mm. Um, you know, just how people live their lives. We want all of those things to be represented as context for environmental stories. Mm. So the training that we do for journalists is intended to help 
reporters and editors and opinion writers and filmmakers better understand the specific scientific content related to environmental issues like climate change or water pollution um, or or overfishing or whatever. Yeah. Um, and also tell those stories in ways that are more relevant to people um, and more compelling. So people actually think, oh, hey, okay, now I understand this issue better and I get how it relates to my life. Yeah. Uh, so that's fascinating because uh, so I'll, I think when people think of the field of communications, they often think of um, folks who do the job of um, of selling ideas. Um, and in a lot of in a lot of ways that can be sort of framed in a commercial sense, mm-hmm. I think. Um, but the work that you do in science communication is about advancing science um, and helping us, uh, by us I mean journalists, um, narrative storytellers, nonfiction storytellers, um, understand the science better and be asking uh, more probing, more exciting questions to help right. sort of move move us along. That's so exciting. Right. And also, you know, ultimately beyond, so we do these training programs and we develop resources to help journalists and scientists do their jobs better when yeah. it comes to communicating science topics. But also, you know, we really want to help foster informed public conversations about environmental challenges and solutions, you know, mm. so that we're not trying Metcalf Institute's goal isn't to tell people what the right answer is. You know, we want to make sure that people have access to information that is accurate mm-hmm. and contextualized so that they can, you know, look at that information, read it, listen to it, watch it, whatever, and then make up their own minds, yeah. you know, so, but they're coming from a place that is, um, you know, th- there's there's more information for them to make their own conclusions. Yeah. So yesterday we had an amazing conversation, uh, but one of the things we've been talking a ton about that I feel like in uh, my conversation with that group, um, we danced around a little bit, was um, these norms, right? Uh, you mentioned yesterday and today um, the sort of dominant cultural norms in science that are hard to call out. Can we do that right now? Let's call out some of these norms. Sure. And I know that you guys, uh, the way these task force work, we we break up into smaller groups to get work done. And you guys did some brainstorming today about what the norms are that keep us from broadening participation in STEM. Um, can we talk about some of those? Yeah. Yeah. Um, we came up with a super long list, but I'll give you just a yeah. couple examples. So one of them is um, the idea that there's one avenue toward being a STEM professional and that that avenue is you go to college, you get a degree in some STEM field, and then you go to graduate school and you get a degree and then you ultimately get a PhD and then you are legit. Mm -hmm. And once you have that legitimacy with that degree, then you can be an expert. So that is the idea of expertise as a dominant cultural norm in STEM. Um, But in reality, expertise comes in a lot of different ways. And people have all kinds of ways of understanding and relating to Mm. and knowing STEM issues, you know, STEM topics. 
So what, that's a dominant cultural norm that we want to break down. Yeah. Um, another one is that um, people who are not STEM professionals um, don't have anything to add to scientific conversations. Right. So that's a dominant cultural norm that we also want to dispel. Give me an example. So um, let's say we are trying to sort out how to um, plan for sea level rise mm. in a community. I live in Rhode Island. So planning for sea level rise is a big deal. Yeah. And if a bunch of scientists who and engineers were to get together and say, OK, we're going to think about how to plan for sea level rise. So we need to have someone who studies sea level rise here. We need to have a structural engineer in the room. Mm. We need to have someone who can talk to us about um, um I, I, I don't know, so, some other example that I can't come up with right now. Anyway, we need <laughs> right. to have all of these quote unquote experts yeah. in the room. Yeah. But if they don't have people who are, live in coastal communities and actually make the decisions about what they're going to do in their their homes or the places that they live, whether they own them or rent them or whatever, if they don't have those people involved in the conversation, mm -hmm. then no matter what, all of those experts come up with about how people can plan for sea level rise, they might be missing some of the most obvious aspects mm. of how to help people plan, you know, like, um, um, like if there is a great, if there's a huge nor'easter that comes through and it causes all of this storm surge that is aggravated by sea level rise. And that means that the storm surge actually pushes further inland mm -hmm. than it might have without sea level rise. Um, so a person in that position who lives in a coastal community is going to have to think about, well, like, OK, so can I do I have time to put up plywood over my windows when I also have to um, do my job and get the kid to school or from school or all of these other mm -hmm. very practical things that a person has to do yeah. um, that affect planning at a very um, nitty gritty level? Yeah. So if you don't have someone who's in the room and is thinking about all of these really important practical aspects, um, then your big planning process with all of your experts is not necessarily going to be effective. Yeah. You also have that that um, one of the examples I love is you, you think about um, a huge part of science is about observation. Um, and so for an expert to come into one of these contexts and say, oh, you know, uh, you're uh, whatever it is, your air quality is poor. Um, certainly a 15 year old kid who lives on that block, um, could, uh, give you a pretty strong sense of what it's like to open his window. Um, and, and, uh, how many times, uh, somebody in the house cleans the windowsills or, uh, these kinds of things. There are some pretty awesome examples of youth programs in, uh, who've now taken advantage of, um, uh, open data around air quality oh, and um, uh, students who are participating in science in that way, mm -hmm. um, where they'll set up air quality sensors on their windowsills and participate in a in a much bigger sort of open data project. Um, I love that stuff. So observation yeah. is another. Um, okay, so what are what are some of the other um, other cultural norms? Yesterday we talked about the idea of what a scientist. Uh, 
uh, technologist, engineer, mathematician uh, looks like in our right. minds. Right. Um, this is m- maybe the most obvious one. Right. Um, what are some of the other sort of less obvious that that uh, you guys talked about today? A couple of the other dominant cultural norms that we discussed today um, is the um, one is the idea that STEM professionals are always objective or neutral. Mm. So that's a um, a pretty standard assumption about how scientists and engineers, et cetera, do their work. But the reality is we're all human. Mm. We all bring some kinds of, um, you know, implicit bias to mm. the work that we do. Yeah. And and the important thing is to name that, to recognize it and and then move forward, you know, like um, just acknowledging that this assumed objectivity is not always entirely present yep. is important. Um, another one is that STEM um, uh, um, disciplines are entirely about facts without creativity involved. Mm-hmm. So this is a really important point, I think, for youth programs yeah. because, in fact, the best STEM projects are the creative ones, you know? So sure, of course there are facts involved and facts are very important, but they're not the end all be all. Um, This idea of the creativity inherent in the, the STEM enterprise is a really important idea to recognize. But the dominant cultural norm is that STEM is just facts. Mm. Can we, can we, can we, can we, um, this is uh, sort of related, but w- one of the cultural norms that actually didn't come up in the last couple of days, it sort of came up, but it was, but it was implicit, is, uh, and Dale McCready talked about this a little bit yesterday, where um, she was kind of describing science as being um, potentially this um, fun, creative, um, exploratory activity um and and one of the the questions i was posing to her was you know isn't isn't that the stuff that's reserved for art and the humanities uh fun fun and uh creativity jokingly obviously but Hmm. um but i think one of the cultural norms that's actually that hasn't come up that i i wish we had a chance to talk more about we will now is um the idea that, um, you know, that creative people do art and uh, there's a different uh, personality that does STEM um, and that those two things, uh, I think we've successfully sort of reinforced this through our institutions that those two things are kind of separate. Mm -hmm. It's like um, math people over here, creative people over here. one of the things I love about our team at Mouse is we have a lot of um, artists who came to uh, technology and engineering later in their uh, life, later in their career, in part because they were part of uh, cultural um, and institutional settings that sort of pitted them uh, as creatives as opposed to, uh, you know, STEM professionals. Mm-hmm. Um that's a cultural norm that uh, that holds us back tremendously, and uh, I love the idea. I love to talk about um, examples like um, uh, Leonardo da Vinci mm-hmm. and um, 
folks who, you know, there was a reminding people that there was a time when um, we didn't separate these domains in the way that we do now. And uh, as a result, we had um, individuals whose thought sort of traversed those areas so fluidly that um, it it created some of the most important um, sort of forms of, of discovery and contributions in art and and um, so this is all kind of a um, uh, uh, you know a soapbox but um, but I guess what I'm getting at is that these cultural norms are really important um, and so my next question for you is sort of as we're talking about um, these norms and we're talking about science communication, the focus of this year has been broadening participation. And I'm curious for someone like you, um, uh, specifically about how you think this work impacts science communication and how do these cultural norms hold us back in, um, in science communication as separate from, for now, um, you know, learning and learning sciences and uh, maybe museum studies and other settings that we've been talking about over the course of, of this year? That is a great question. Um, I, and the short answer is that, that I think these norms hold us back in science communication tremendously. Um, so there's, as does our very um, n- narrow frequently very narrow approaches toward um, conceiving who belongs in STEM and who contributes to STEM. Um, so, you know, science communication, when done best, is um, audience-specific. So in order to um, be relevant for any particular group, you need to understand what that crew cares about, mm. um, what is what it, what excites them, what repels them, you know, and so um, it, it, when we when we stick to these these dominant cultural norms in STEM, we're really narrowing the scope of how we practice science communication and how we. Um, how we identify audiences who could participate in mm. science communication. Um, and um, it, it, all of these things, you know, are, are really wrapped up in a big ball that many people are trying to tease apart in different ways. And yeah. this project that we've been doing, the Broadening Participation Participation Task Force, is part of that. But there are a lot of other people who are really working in the science communication and public engagement um, fields as researchers and practitioners who are really pushing against that narrative of, you know, there is there is a, a, a way, a single way to reach out and engage more people in science mm. because the, the many ways involve art. They involve, um, um, you know, building on pe- on the contributions that any person can bring to a conversation about science rather than assuming the, the absence of contributions mm. that that person might bring to the conversation. Um, so, I, I feel like I'm going in a lot of different directions here because my mind is kind of spinning yeah. with the enormity of this. Yeah. But it's um, it's a really important 
problem that I think many people are only kind of at the tip of the iceberg of addressing as it relates to science communication and public engagement with science. Yeah. What does the ideal look like? Like, let's say we succeed and participation in STEM is broad and, um, and as a result, science communication has changed. What changes? The people telling the stories, the people represented in the stories. Um, so, you know, the, the, the nature of what the stories are, mm-hmm. you know, because, um, science can be communicated in so many different ways for so many purposes in so many contexts, yeah. you know, and if, uh, if, if those efforts are being led by a, um, a very homogeneous group of people um, or for a very homogeneous group of people, it just diminishes the opportunities for us to have really eye-opening conversations about the role of STEM in our lives mm-hmm. and the things that we could be doing, you know, that the ideas that might come up from those conversations, the person, you know, the, the elementary school student who is engaged in a conversation about STEM in a way that asks them to, um, bring forward their creativity rather than putting kind of rules around the way they should think about STEM. Mm -hmm. And that, child grows up and does something that, you know, we might not have conceived of before. Um, I just think that the potential for broadening participation in STEM, um, is, is huge, but demands these opportunities early and often to actually, um, really kind of throw out the old, um, kind of rigidity about how we thought, STEM could be discussed yeah. or shared. Yep. Yeah. Um, Sunshine, I could talk to you for, we could do a whole separate episode, but this has been um, terrific. Um, let's talk about our exam, our, our favorite uh, exemplars from the world of uh, science communication. Okay. I'll share mine first. Okay. Um, as we were talking, I was thinking about a, a sort of contemporary naturalist that I love. Uh, his name is James Prosek. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he does these, he's a writer, he's written several books, but he also uh, is an, a painter and artist. And he's in the spirit of um, James Audubon and, and um, uh, that sort of spirit of naturalism. Mm-hmm. He uh, documents um uh, fish of the world, fishes, I should say, of the world um, through watercolor and a, a few different media. And um, oh, he's so, so, so good. Um, but he's one of my favorite, and he's a New Englander. Um, so he he talks a lot about um, areas that I know, and, and he's just one of, one of my favorites. But uh, I think to illustrate your point, part of the reason I picked that as an example is um, I think that there's an old school version of what we deem to be credible science communication that doesn't include um, an incredibly well-planned, um, well-thought-out set of observations the way Audubon mm-hmm. might have done them as science. Yeah. And yet 
Audubon now is absolutely celebrated as um, for uh, his contribution to science. Um, so if we if the more we try to make that distinction uh, and be sort of old school in our thought about um, what cultural norms we subscribe to about what is science, uh, it really limits um, who gets to tell the story. So that's Agreed. that was one that that I liked was Prosec. Okay. Um, well, so you just made me think of a good friend of mine. Her name is Arpita Chowdhury. And she is, um, she's a, she was trained as a scientist. Um, she has worked in um, kind of natural resource management um, for a long time, but she is also a painter. Mm. And she, a few years ago, realized that her kind of um, occasional painting was not sufficient for her. It mm. was, you know, like she needed to do more of this in her life. But yeah. because science is so important to her, she created this um, blog that she calls the Science of Illustration. Mm. So she paints usually uh, with watercolors, um, but her her medium varies. But she'll read something in the news about some some you know scientific discovery or whatever, yeah. and then she will make a painting about that. So um, she painted for me once um, a, a, a picture of an elephant and it has um, kind of, um, you know, um, strands of DNA around the elephant because there had been a story about how elephants never get cancer oh, and they have this fascinating genetic, uh, like this fascinating genetics that for whatever reason that nobody really understands yeah. prevents them from getting cancer. And so she does these beautiful paintings that all tell stories. You don't necessarily know that they're telling you a story mm. about a particular scientific topic until you read the text that she writes with them. Interesting. But you could, you know, so I, I you, if you wanted to know more, you could read more about it. Or if you just want to appreciate the art for its beauty, you can do that too. Interesting. So she's one of my favorites. Great. I like, um, I heard a great interview recently with Michael Pollan, mm -hmm. uh, who wrote several books, but um, among them, things like uh, The Omnivore's Dilemma. Um, and I feel like he's the type of person who uh, really comes out of, I think, the discipline of, of uh, science journalism mm -hmm. um, and has made popular and I think the most important thing is accessible some of the ideas around food science, which is uh, pretty neat. So that's that's my my second go to. Do you have one more for us? Sure. Um, well, I wanted to comment kind of in general on the fact that I also just noticed that that uh, like a creep, all of my examples are dudes. <laughs> like what is what is my problem? Here I am. Here I am in a task force. No one's going to listen to this, obviously, but, um, and all of my examples are dudes. I have plenty of women you can borrow from. I have no problem admitting the fact. I love, uh, damn it. You better work on that. Yeah, that's, that's. Kudos to you for acknowledging that. <laughs> Go ahead. Your other example. This is why we're having this conversation. Yes. yes. So, um, okay. Another example that I have is, is actually kind of a more general example. And that is that a lot of um, news outlets now, at least the ones that can afford to do this. So I shouldn't say a lot, but you know, the, the, um, the more resource heavy uh, news outlets like the New York times, for example, mm. 
are doing are especially when it comes to science stories, mm. they are showing their stories in a very different way mm -hmm. on their websites. Um, and to some degree, even in their, their print medium, but, um, but especially on the web, obviously, because there's a lot more opportunities there. And so, you know, you, you read the story and there are images that come up as you're scrolling through the story. There are data visualizations that you can actually play with and understand the story better. Um, you know, there are all of these ways for you to access the, the details of these um, scientific stories in ways that suit you yeah. as an individual, you yeah. know? So I think that that trend has been immensely helpful yeah. um, for, for allowing people to access science news in much more meaningful ways. So can I make a suggestion for your next, when you, when you put together your next, I don't know, um, like a symposium, uh, for inclusion and in science communication, just throwing something out there. Um, if you had a session on that topic of, um, how the sort of interactive, how interactive media, um, supports science communication and, and broadening participation, um, uh, cause there are also accessibility issues in there as well. Um, Invite to that conversation a, a sort of digital ethicist, somebody who's really thinking about um, the quality of data and um, what data can really truthfully be presented in real time and those kinds of things. Because I've had a few of those conversations recently that are that are super um, interesting. I thought of um, a great science communication text that is one of my all-time favorite favorites. To tell. Written by a woman. <laughs> Ready? Redemption. <laughs> Ready? Guys, I'm not a creep. Um, Gals, he's not a creep. There's this book. Right, yeah. <laughs> what is my... What, seriously. Sunshine. Damn it. Um, uh, there's a book that is uh, like a century old, but it's by this uh, woman named May Cravath Wharton. Um, it's called Dr. Woman of the Cumberlands. Ooh. And for any nerd like me who really likes nonfiction um, and is interested in the – this was at a time when um, – so Makrabath Wharton, the story is essentially that she goes to um, Appalachia at a time where there was very little medical uh, treatment. And she basically uh, goes for a time and then decides to stay and, and documents her life in this in this um, autobiography. Mm -hmm. And it's all about the kinds of issues, delivering children in log cabins and um, what kind of stuff comes up. But uh, a beautiful, pretty incredible um, uh, scientific text um, in, in what it observes, um, but a beautiful narrative in just the story it's telling about that history in our, in, uh, our science. Whew. I feel like, I feel like I came back a little bit. That's a great one. Um, sunshine. Thank you so much for doing this. This has been so fun. My pleasure. Thank um, you. I think we should start a podcast that's just about awesome uh, examples of science communication, so I can learn more. Oh, I like it. Get more of your tips. Um, 
Thank you so much for doing this. Uh, it has been so fun. Where can people look for you to uh, follow stuff that's going on at the Metcalf Institute? Well, they can visit our website, metcalfinstitute.org, and they can follow us on Twitter at MetcalfURI, as in University of Rhode Island, which is where we're based. Um, uh, they can follow me at Sunshine Menezes on Twitter because I do a lot of SciComm tweeting. And um, that's, that's nerd for science communications, SciComm. Thank you, yes. I love it. <laughs> Thanks, Sunshine. That is SciComm nerd stuff, right? Thank you. For more info about advertising with us, charitable sponsorship, or if you have show ideas you want to share with me, find me on Twitter at M.A. Lesser. No Such Thing is produced by me, Mark Lesser, a learner like you, and our show notes can be found at nosuchthingpodcast.org. The tracks in this podcast were produced by Leroy Tindy, a guest in episode one, an Olympic fully clothed hotel pool swimmer. Find him on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats. This show would not be possible without support from the good people at Mouse, a national youth development nonprofit that believes in technology as a force for good. Find us online at mouse.org. <laughs>